because these guys like to eat. And we get off the plane today, and it starts instantly. They take me to this place called Havana Harry's. You know it? You know it? We, we may ate more food. We, we ate more food, the three of us, than villages in Africa ate today. I mean, we just, we just, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. I still can't get over Havana Harry's. What a place. It was great. It was really great. I had the mango chicken, and I'd have it again in a heartbeat. It was delicious. Hey, enough of that. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Tonight, I want us to look at one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Matthew chapter 12. And it's my favorite passage of Scripture because it conveys to us in vivid terms the heart of our Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 12, and the title of my message tonight, A Splint and a Flint. A Splint and a Flint. Matthew chapter 12, let's read our text and then we'll pray. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. Till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your words to us tonight. Lord, thank you for this wonderful glimpse we get into the heart of our Lord Jesus. Lord, there's some of us tonight who've come beaten down, who've come searching, who've come hopeless, and we desperately, Lord, we need a lift tonight. Or we need to get our eyes off our circumstances and get our eyes back on you and your plans and your purposes for us. Lord, do that again in our lives tonight. Do it through your word as you often do. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. It's power. It's truths. Speak to us tonight by your spirit, through your word, in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen. Ray and Carol Lehman reside on the east coast of the United States. One summer, they loaded their family into a van and they drove to the west coast. And if you've ever taken one of these long cross-country road trips, you know it's a very, very long drive. It takes almost forever. And it gets even longer when there are kids in the car. Well, to break up the trip, Carol decided to have a family kindness day. Each family member's name was written on a piece of paper and placed in a hat. Then everyone drew out a name. Well, the challenge was to be as kind as possible throughout the day to that person. And it was a great idea. In the car and at the pit stops all throughout the day, everyone found a kind deed to do for the person whom they had been assigned. Well, Carol's idea went so well that the next day, her youngest son, Darrell, asked to do it again. He passed the hat, and everyone picked out a name. Well, once again, the family went out of their way to pour out love on their selection. It took until around lunchtime to notice a peculiarity. Little Darrell was enjoying an unprecedented amount of attention and love and kindness Well, after a hurried investigation, it was revealed 
that Durrell had written his name on all the papers he had placed in the hat. He was hoarding the family's affections. Yet it's understandable, isn't it? We all crave kindness and love. Every one of us needs some encouragement. Often we neglect to pass on an encouraging word for fear of giving the other person the big head. We're afraid of inflating the other guy's ego. Well, author Doug Fields proposes a litmus test to tell if a person really needs to be encouraged. He concludes, if a person is breathing, they need encouragement. Life can tear us down and rough us up. It punches us drunk and slaps us silly. The world we occupy can be a discouraging place. Beatdowns occur daily. That's why a little encouragement can go a long way. Well, tonight, I come to you with words of hope. It reminds me of Hall of Fame basketball coach John Wooden. Wooden led UCLA to 10 national titles, and he had a rule on his team. Whenever a player scored a basket, he was required to wink or nod or smile at the teammate who had passed him the ball. Well, once instructing the, new, the team about this rule, one of the new players asked, but coach, what if he's not looking? Wooden replied, I guarantee you he'll be looking. You see, the coach knew we all are looking for affirmation. I've heard it said, man does not live by bread alone. He also needs some buttering up. <laughs> and it's true. All human beings need daily doses of propping up. When I turned 50, my wonderful wife, she threw a surprise birthday party for me. She decorated the house with scores of colorful helium-filled balloons. It all added to the festive mood. But afterwards, those same balloons were a source of sadness. For it didn't take long for the balloons to lose their helium. I mean, like the very next day. That next morning, all of those fun, helium-filled balloons were nothing but shriveled up pieces of plastic hanging on a string. And as pretty as a plastic balloon looks filled with helium, a balloon that's deflated looks that much uglier. I'll never forget sitting alone in the living room the morning after the party thinking about those balloons. And I asked God, God, are these balloons a metaphor? Even a prophecy? Will the life I have left be like a soaring balloon or a shriveled up piece of plastic just hanging on? My prayer is to soar, but I've drawn one conclusion. As a balloon needs helium, I need encouragement. You know, today doctors hasten the healing process by performing all kinds of complex invasive surgeries, bypasses and ectomies and transplants. But when it comes to the healing of the soul, a simple pat on the back is often the best therapy. I've heard it said, a pat on the back, though only a few vertebrae removed from a kick in the pants, is miles ahead in results. We all desperately need encouragement. And our Lord Jesus comes to us with healing and with help and with hope. Here in Matthew chapter 12, verses 20 and 21, we find a messianic prophecy that speaks to us of the nature of our Lord Jesus. 
Isaiah 42 describes the Messiah and the nature of his ministry. And I love Isaiah 42. What a chapter. Let me hit a few highlights. In Isaiah 42 verse 1, God says of his son and servant, I have put my spirit upon him. In verse 4, God declares of Jesus, he will not fail. Verse 6 calls him a light to the Gentiles. Verse 7 predicts that Jesus will open blind eyes and will bring out prisoners from the prison house. In verse 9, we're told that Jesus will do new things. And in light of all Isaiah 42 predicts of the Messiah, verse 10 is a command to the nations. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. But of all the pungent promises here in Isaiah's prophecy, there is one that captures and stirs Matthew's imagination more than all the others. It's Isaiah 42, verse 3. And it's the passage that Matthew quotes of Jesus here in his gospel, chapter 12, verses 20 and 21. A bruised reed he will not break. And smoking flax he will not quench. Till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name, Gentiles will trust. Our Lord is all about encouraging, not extinguishing. To the bruised reed, he is a splint. And to the smoking flax, he is a flint. Our Lord Jesus is a splint and a flint. On the banks along the Jordan River, reeds grow high up to the sky. These bulrushes rise upwards as much as 18 feet above the water level. The tip of the reed carries a white plume. Its base can be as thick as three inches in diameter. These reeds help with erosion control along the riverbed. But they have other purposes as well. The lower portion of the reed is often used as a cane or a walking stick. The thinner middle section can be carved into musical instruments, woodwinds like flutes. The slender upper portion of the reed was used as pens and writing tools. Reeds were almost never used as weapons. And why? Because they lacked the necessary strength. You remember when Jesus spoke of the authority of John the Baptist, he asked rhetorically, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? I mean, unlike John, reeds are flimsy. In fact, a fragile reed swaying back and forth in the wind was a symbol for weakness. And a bruised reed was weaker still. Despite its intended use, a reed was useless when the stalk was bruised or crimped. It didn't even require a complete break. Just the slightest little bend in the stalk was enough for it to get uprooted and tossed aside. Since reeds grew in clumps, no one would ever take the time or make the effort to nurture back to health a single crippled reed. It would be a waste. Oh, just throw it away. Go back down to the riverbed and get another. There were plenty of other reeds to choose from. And the same was true for smoking flax. Flax was used to make textiles, various fabrics were made from its stalks. Flax is a plant that grows two to four feet high. It yields beautiful blue flowers. When harvested, its stalks are dried out. 
And when the stalks become parched, they're easily shredded into individual threads. The most common use for flax in Jesus' day was as wicks for oil lamps. Dry flax fiber is extremely flammable. Place a thread in a bowl of olive oil, hit it with a spark, and it easily ignites. It burns for a long, long time. The trick, though, is to keep the flax dry. For if you moisten it with just a little water, all it'll do is smolder and smoke without really catching fire. A waterlogged wick was of no use. And just like a bruised reed, you threw away a smoking flax. You could purchase dry wicks for a penny a pound. The time and the effort it took to reignite a smoldering wick was a total waste. Just grab another. And here's what I think, friends. I believe some of you in this room tonight, living here in the 21st century, can best be described by these 2,000-year-old oriental analogies. Jesus' words and idioms are timeless. You might not have thought in these terms before you came into this room, but tonight you're thinking, this is how I feel. This is how I feel inside. I am a bruised reed. Yes, I'm a smoking flax. For like a broken reed, you too have been damaged. You've been bent against your will. You've been wounded. Your once tall stalk now has a break. Your weakness is now weaker. You feel like the slightest breeze could blow you over. You know you stand no chance in a windstorm. And you've assumed that you're no longer fit for the purposes God once intended. You feel like it's over for you. It would be easier for God to just go back down to the riverbank and start over with another reed. And like smoldering flax, some of you are exhausted. Your enthusiasm and your passion for life and ministry and maybe even your marriage has been doused by a million drops of disappointment. Hope for the future, your willingness to love has been extinguished. If I looked into the furnace of your heart tonight, I'd feel a coldness. I'd see a few dying embers of a once roaring fire. Why would God waste time rekindling wet wood? You've assumed he prefers fresh flax. But here's what you don't realize. Jesus doesn't think the way we think. He's not so utilitarian. When Jesus builds something, he prefers to start with broken reeds. When he starts a fire, he likes using smoldering flax. Jesus hasn't given up on you. Jesus is willing to invest in the bruised reed. He's willing to spend time with the smoking flax. He refuses to write them off or abandon either. He cares deeply for them both. Time used, effort spent, nurturing and healing provided is never a waste in the mind of Jesus. Listen carefully. There are no throwaway people in the eyes of Jesus. Once I saw this movie about a long shot racehorse, and there's a scene where the old horse trainer, he saves the injured thoroughbred from a bullet in the head. Well, later he's asked why. And he replies, You don't throw a whole life away just because he's banged up a little. Let me repeat that. That's music to our ears. 
You don't throw a whole life away just because he's banged up a little. This is what Jesus is saying in our text. And it's not only true of old horses, but also of banged up people. Certainly, when God created mankind, he did so to be far different than we turned out to be. When he scooped out of the ground that handful of dust to make the first man, he had perfection in mind. But then sin entered, and life got hard, and we got hurt, and people got banged up a lot. But Jesus doesn't scrap the damaged goods. He doesn't haul us off to the landfill. It would be easy for Jesus to toss aside the bruised reed and the smoking flax, but that is not in his nature. That is not how Jesus treats people. As far as Jesus is concerned, there are no disposable people. Did you know Jesus is a huge recycler? He is. He redeems and restores and reconciles and revives. These are all Bible words. Jesus breathes new life into exhausted lives. Oh, he has plans for the bruised reeds and for the smoking flags. And the Gospels are full of such examples. Just think of the woman taken in adultery. That gal had been in more laps than a napkin. In fact, she was being exploited not only by the man she slept with, but by the Pharisees who had arranged this tryst to trap Jesus. This gal was a pawn in a move to checkmate the Savior. Talk about a bruised reed. Yet Jesus, the only person in the crowd that day qualified to cast a stone, he didn't. There was no malice in his voice when he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. How many times have we replayed those words in our own heads when we were guilty? Hey, let's not forget them when the rocks are in our hands. Our Lord never broke a bruised reed. Think of Zacchaeus, that short little guy with the long list of sins. He was an enemy collaborator, a swindler to boot. He sold out his countrymen to strong arm for Rome. And Jesus spotted Zac up a tree. What a fitting place for him to be. In a proverbial sense, Zacchaeus lived his whole life out on a limb. But Jesus called him by name and invited himself over to Zach's house for dinner. Zacchaeus had burned his bridges and given up hope. He was a smoking flax if there ever was one. But the favor he felt from Jesus relit a spark in his cold soul. The compassion of Jesus helped this little man stand tall again. Restitution was now his theme. Think of the Gadarean demoniac. When Jesus cast the demons out of him, the evil spirits immediately entered the herd of swine. It drove them to suicide. Su suicide. Imagine those demons. What, imagine what those demons had been doing to the man. And yet Jesus set him free. Or what about the sinful woman who came to Jesus at the Pharisee's house? She bathed the Lord's feet with her tears and perfume. Jesus said she had a big love because he had forgiven her of a big debt. 
Or think of Peter's mother-in-law racked with fever or the lame man lured down through the roof or Mary from Magdala who had boarded seven demons or the hemorrhaging woman who had faith to grab the hem of his robe or old blind Bartimaeus when they told him to keep silent, he kept asking. Or any one of the infectious lepers who cried to be cleansed or Martha of Bethany who like so many of us was busy and tired from serving her Lord. They were all bruised reeds and smoking flags. And can you name me anyone that Jesus turned away? Anyone? Can you name me one crippled, choking soul that he refused to help? No, you can't. For he helped them all. And he's here tonight to help you. And think of Peter. Oh, my. Think of our friend Peter. Perhaps the prime example of a bruised reed and a smoking flax. This man's faith was awfully flimsy. Even after boasting of his loyalty three times, Peter denied his Lord in the most critical hour. Peter proved chicken before the rooster crowed. Afterward, he was so discouraged, he went fishing. He figured he just wasn't cut out for this apostlehood, but at least he could fish. Besides, Jesus wouldn't use him now anyway, not after his colossal failure. So Peter went back to what he knew. Peter figured he could fish. But by the lake, on the beach, the risen Lord Jesus renewed his calling to a discouraged Peter. Jesus told him, feed my sheep. These are just a few examples of God's grace in action. Realize our failure is no greater than Peter's failure. Yet Jesus didn't forsake Peter, and he sure isn't going to forsake you. Jesus doesn't bail on failed followers. I love Psalm 136. 26 times in 26 couplets, the psalmist repeats the phrase, His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. It's as if the psalmist is trying to ram it in our heads. Never give up on Jesus, for he sure hasn't given up on you. The prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, once commented on our text, the feeblest are not disdained by Jesus. He is patient with those who are unlovely in his eyes. Jesus longs to bind up the broken reed and fan the smoking flax into flaming life. Oh, that poor sinners would remember this and trust in him. Okay, poor sinner, are you willing to trust in Jesus? Jesus is a splint to the bruised reed. Have you ever walked through the vegetable garden and seen the stalks of the tomato plants tied to the wooden stakes? On their own, those stalks aren't strong enough to keep the ripening tomatoes from dragging the ground. They need strength and support to come alongside them. And likewise, a bent person, a person who's been nicked or scarred, totters under their own weight. But Jesus is a splint to the bruised reed. He provides support at the very point of your brokenness. The strength of Jesus is what allows you to heal. Jesus holds you up when on your own you would fall. He wraps his strong arms around your frailty. 
Perhaps your injury is spiritual. Maybe it's physical or emotional or relational. It doesn't matter. Jesus promises to be your splint until you grow strong again. You've been betrayed by a friend. Now it's difficult for you to trust another person. You've loved someone and were rejected. Now you're reluctant to love again. Your marriage is wounded. You're worried that your relationship will never be as strong as it once was. Maybe you've embarked on a job or a ministry opportunity that didn't go so well. Now you doubt your gifts and calling. You're suffering a crisis of confidence. You're a bruised reed. But realize Jesus wants to give himself to you. What greater gift could he give? You know, the strategy you hear in the business world today is play to your strengths and minimize your weaknesses. But Jesus has a different way. He wants you to rely on him at the very point of your weakness. Be honest. Admit your faults. Let him show himself strong on your behalf. Jesus will prop you up and build you up. He builds up flimsy folk until they get sturdy again. In the words of our text, he sends forth justice to victory. Jesus is a splint to the bruised reed. And make no mistake about it, he's also a flint to the smoking flax. Bears Grylls, I don't know if you know him, he's a was the star of a TV show called Man vs. Wild. It was my boy's favorite show. And then he had a new survival show. It was called Get Out Alive. It was one of my wife's favorite shows. So over the years, I've watched a lot of Bears Grills. And one thing I've learned about surviving in the wild is you need flint. For with that small piece of flint, you can kindle a fire. And with a fire, you can cook and boil water and stay warm and dry clothes. Life is easier with fire. Every survivalist is excited to have fire. And the same is true spiritually. A life or a ministry or a marriage without spiritual fire, without the fires of enthusiasm and joy and motivation and love and commitment and passion and hope can be very difficult. To survive in the wild of this world, you definitely need fire. Imagine two different rooms on a cold, frozen night. The first room has a roaring fire in the fireplace. The family's all gathered around the hearth. Everyone enjoys the smells and the light and the warmth of the fire. Now imagine a second room. On this chilly night, the fireplace is empty. Folks walk through this room, but it's not a living room. Far from it. No one lives in this room. There's no warmth or light to attract people to stay because there's no fire. And what I've described are not just two rooms, but they're two lives. One contains the flame of God. The Holy Spirit lives inside this person, and people are attracted to the love and warmth and light that they sense. But the other life is empty and cold and lonely. There's no life in this room because there's no fire. There's nothing to attract other people to come and stay here. Our tendency is to walk off from the room that's cold and empty. Why would anybody want to hang out there? 
But Jesus refuses to leave such a life. He stays in the cold and empty room. He refuses to abandon them. He wants to build a fire. He has flint. Jesus is the spark that can get the fires of enthusiasm burning again. At times it's hard to start a fire. You have to prime it, show a little patience, be persistent. But those are all tasks that Jesus is good at. He's an expert at rekindling fire. And not only can Jesus relight a fire in your heart, he can do the same in your marriage or for a friendship or for a confidence. Jesus can take smoldering kindling, just a flicker of a flame, and he can fan it back to a full-blown blaze. Jesus can reignite a ministry that had nearly died out. He can revive a dream or a vision that had almost faded. He'll reestablish a respect smothered by failure. Jesus specializes in rekindling burned out people. Hey, you remember what John the Baptist declared of Jesus? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus is the Lord of the spark. He fires up new life. Now, understand the spiritual warfare that surrounds this ministry of Jesus. Yes, our Lord is a splint and a flint, whereas our enemy is a harsh wind and a wet blanket. I mean, Satan's nature is just the opposite of Jesus. Let me warn you about Satan. He has a killer instinct. Do you know what I mean by this term, a killer instinct? Such a person doesn't just want to beat their opponent. They want to put them out of the game. When he falls down, the goal is to finish him off. A football player with the killer instinct doesn't just tackle the quarterback. He tries to disable him and put him out of commission. And Satan has this killer instinct. Satan doesn't just bend the reed or break its skin. He's the fierce wind that tries to tear it in two. Satan doesn't just let the fire die out. He's the wet blanket. He's the bucket of water that tries to snuff out the coals. And if it were not for Jesus, Satan would work his cruelty on us. There would be no hope for recovery. Our first failure would be fatal. But Jesus keeps hope alive. Do you ever suffer from inexplicable moodiness? Or is that just me? I mean, you're soaring one day, and the next day you're depressed. How does that happen? I mean, it amazes me how vulnerable I am to the highs and to the lows, to the ebbs and to the flows. A lot causes this turbulence. But have you ever considered that a main cause could be spiritual? That that wave of encouragement followed by that wave of despair may be the result of spiritual warfare? I think it's true. When a bout with the blues strikes at a strange time and for no apparent reason, there may actually be a spiritual battle raging to sink your faith. Discouragement isn't always traceable to discernible, obvious causes. The enemy of our soul loves to ambush our feelings. But likewise, encouragement can also rise up 
and roll in over us in the same sort of mysterious manner. Not long ago, my sons and I, we burned some debris in the meadow behind my house. It was a huge bonfire. It was amazing. The neighbors came out to see it. Probably were worried they might have to call the fire department. Late in the afternoon, I doused the big blaze with water. And it was two full days later, two days, mind you, I noticed smoke rising up from the meadow. I couldn't believe that fire still had life, but the wind had kicked up, and it had stirred up a spark, and it had reignited those smoldering ashes. And this is what Jesus can do in a believing heart. Even when there's no visible reason to be optimistic, even when a positive outlook isn't tied to anything tangible, even when you've seen it all burn out before your very eyes, hope can swoop in. The Holy Spirit comes like a rushing, mighty wind. He's dispatched from the throne of grace. The Spirit of Jesus comes to us like a splint and like a flint. You see, the starting point for you and I comes at the end of this, mor- this evening's text. The last line that we read, Isaiah says, In his name, Gentiles will trust. And my question to you tonight is, do you trust Jesus? And don't just gloss over that. Do you really trust Jesus? Not just in the macro sense, but in the micro sense. Years ago when I was at the university in pursuit of my business degree, I had to take two economics courses. Microeconomics and macroeconomics. The macro is the big picture. It involves market trends and government regulations and the health of the overall economy. Whereas micro becomes more specific. It deals with the choices individual companies make. And let me suggest there's such a thing as macro and micro faith. Macro faith looks at the universal issues, while micro-faith examines matters specific to me. Macro-faith embraces the overarching truths. There is a God. His Son is Jesus. He died to save me. He's alive today. The Bible is God's Word. But there is also such a thing as micro-faith. And this is the faith I exhibit in the nitty-gritty of my life. Do I let Jesus influence my thoughts or do I let my friends in the world? Do I obey him in my finances? Do I lean on him for my emotional needs? Do I trust him in the day-to-day right where I live? Oh, both the macro and the micro are important. You could say it like this. My eternal salvation depends on macro faith while my internal salvation depends on micro faith. You see, a bruised reed and a smoking flax needs a specific, targeted faith. We need to trust Jesus where it hurts. I'm sure you have macro faith, but what about the micro? Do you trust him at the exact point of your break? Right where the mending and the healing needs to occur? Do you trust him there to do that work? At the very moment that fire is about to smolder and die, that's when your faith needs to kick in. 
2,000 years ago, a man was rejected and beaten and crucified and buried. Yet three days later, he rose from the dead, never to die again. You believe that? I know you do. But that empty tomb is proof of so much more. Right now, your back is against the wall. You face what seems to be insurmountable odds. You're looking for reasons to hope but not finding many. Now, now is the time you need to look again at that empty tomb. Jesus, too, was a damaged reed. He became cold embers for us. Are you telling me that your problems are greater than the hardships Jesus faced? Certainly not. Yet in the end, the Lord triumphed over our arch enemies, both sin and death. And now with that victory under his belt, nothing is impossible for Jesus. And Jesus will work miracles in our lives if we trust him. Understand, your discouragement is not a big deal. In the grand scheme, it's tiny. It's the size of a mere quarter, a small coin. In contrast, Jesus is larger than the sun itself. He shines brighter. The warmth he generates is more powerful. But here's what can happen. If I hold a quarter up close to my eyeball, it can block out the enormous sun. To me at that moment, that small coin becomes larger than the sun itself. If I allow it, a tiny coin can block out the colossal sun. And in the same way, a small but well-placed speck of discouragement can devastate our faith. If we're going to walk in victory, we can't allow discouragement to ever get between our eyes and God's Son. Once a dad and his little boy were planning a fishing trip. For weeks, it's all the son could talk about. They were planning to leave the very next day. Excitement had been building and building in this little boy. The night before the big trip, the father was tucking his son into bed when the little guy looked up at his dad and he said to him, Daddy, thank you for tomorrow. And this is what faith says. Lord, thank you for tomorrow. Jesus rose again to be there in your tomorrow. Even when your strength fails or when your passion fades, Jesus promises to be there in your tomorrow. A bruised reed, he will not break. And smoking flax, he will not quench. This is how Jesus treats us. Now all that's left is for us to trust him. Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight. Thank you for this amazing passage and what it promises. And how it reveals your heart, Lord Jesus. Lord, you haven't given up on us. And Lord, I pray for that person who's come in tonight worried, wondering if there's any hope for them. If their trial will ever be over. If the love will ever break through. If they'll ever be able to overcome and walk again. There is victory in Jesus. Lord, the problem is not you. It's not your faithfulness to us. 
You are a splint to the bruised reed, and you are a flint to the smoldering flax. Lord, I pray tonight you'll build up our faith. Help us to trust you, Lord. And I pray that the God of the breakthrough would orchestrate just that in some hearts tonight. That as we look to you, as we trust in you, Lord, revive our hope. Lord, restore our joy. Lord, renew our determination to walk with you. Thank you that there's no throwaway people in your eyes. That you love us, Lord. And that you haven't given up on us. So, Lord, help us not give up on you. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. Hey, we got a little bit of time, so uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter 11, verse 28.